I was asked this morning to speak to us at the beginning of a short series on foundations in this church about dependence upon God. And so all week long I was meditating on our human resistance to this dependence that we, like Adam and Eve, like to become God. We want to be God. Just tell me how to do it so I can still be in control of my life. I can still dictate. I can still be master of my own ship and all the things that you just had high school graduation over. And, um, and how difficult it is for us to um, just to let go and, and stop trying to control our own lives. And that's what I was supposed to talk about this morning. But in here, if my wife was here, not up in Lincoln, Nebraska, holding our one-year-old granddaughter this morning, she would be looking at me with that eye of hers. Bob, do what you're told to do. But instead, we're going to talk about dependency, but in a very different context this morning. The context of dependence upon God creating within us this amazing level of curiosity. And this, this deep searching and risk-taking after God. Which takes a different form of dependency, but, but I think it's really pertinent to us today. Because I, I have to tell you, I've not been as excited about preaching anything as I've been about preaching this one this morning. Because God is breathing something brand new in this church. If you haven't been here for a while... Uh, If you're visiting with us today, hey, good, I'm glad you're here and it's brand new for you. But if you've been here for a while, you've seen us going through some transition times. But in the last little bit, I don't know, I can't put a date to it, God has been building and breathing something brand new within us. The foundations of this church are going deep right now. And um, God is going to ask this church to be something different, unique, and amazing. And I don't, none of us know what that looks like. But all I know is that we got to be prepared for it. Because it's not going to end up looking anything like what we probably, any of us, have in our minds about what God's going to be doing here. So hold on. Let's be open to this curiosity and this mystery and the uncertainty and the journey and all of that that God has in store for us. So if you're ready for that this morning, let's take a moment and pray. Let's just center down. Put everything aside, all the fear I just created in you, and uh, let's, let's release ourselves into God's presence. So, Father, we just thank you that you are so amazing. No, no matter what we do or don't do, you don't love us more or less. It's not anything about that. It is simply how much life do we want to grasp a hold of? How much vision do we want to receive? How much of your power and strength and, and future do we want to live in? And so we release ourselves right now into whatever you want to tell us. And we are yours. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to start with a text that we're going to come back to several times this morning. One of, it's an amazing text in Psalm chapter 32, verse 8. I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. That one we've all heard for a million years. But how is he going to instruct us? I will counsel you with my eye. How many churches have you gone to that have taught you how to let God counsel you with his eye? Now, we know how that works, right? I mean, I just gave you a little example of it. I'd look out of bed, oh, Bob, don't do it, don't do it, don't, you know. 
Uh, all she has to do is look, and I know what she means, right? When was the last time you looked at God, and he had an eye for you, and you knew exactly what he meant when he looked at you? And as a way of introduction, I want to add Isaiah 55 here. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call him while he's near. Now, we would write that today. God's always near, and God's always able to be found, so seek him. That's how we would put it in our language. Let the wicked, that's you and I, not somebody in Folsom Prison, that's you and I. And what makes us wicked is that we forget our, that we always hang to our way and we have our own thoughts. We're limited by our own perspectives. And we want to rule our lives. That's where the dependency comes in. That's what makes us wicked, fundamentally wicked. It's not your behaviors, it's your basic DNA. Let the wicked forsake his way, the evil his thoughts... Let him turn to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him, and to our God, for he will freely pardon. He'll take care of that for you. And what's he going to replace it with? Hey, listen, I know your thoughts are not my thoughts, your ways are not my ways, but as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Hold on with this God, because whatever you think about this God, you don't know him yet. You know a little bit about him. You have an amazing journey with him so far, but the minute you mention the word God, you've already limited him. You've already put him in some kind of package that you can understand because we have to do that or we wouldn't understand God anyway, right? But let's understand that whatever we have in our mind about this God, it has already limited him by what he really is. His thoughts, who he is, his, the reality is way beyond what you and I can imagine. When we get to heaven, every one of us, our mouths are going to drop open and say, oh, this is what you're talking about. Oh, wow. That's why the, the disciples tried to put, I mean, John said he's light. And he's the word. He's logos. He's all that is ever known in the universe. is all wrapped up in this creative force. And he's light here. He, they didn't put it in terms of God or Yahweh or anything like that. It was, he's spirit. He's, he's the mover and the shaker. He's the creator. He's, you know, and the words just fail you when it comes to describing who this God is. And if that's true, we got to be wide open for surprises, Right? Now, to show you that I'm truly Ozarkian now that I've lived here for six and a half years, I have an Ozarkian story to tell you. This guy got a new hunting dog. I'm not Ozarkian, but I know how to say hunting dog. Um, he takes him out for the first day just to see what he does, if he, what he knows, what he doesn't know. And, and so they go out to the lake behind his house there, and they wait for a few minutes, and a duck comes by, and he shoots the duck, and it lands out in the middle of the lake. And so the dog points, he releases him, he goes out. When he gets to the water, instead of swimming out to the duck, he walks on top of the water out to the duck, picks up the duck, walks on the water back, drops the duck at the, at the foot of this hunter, and he says, Wow! What have I got here? And so he said, I've got to try that one again. So he shot another duck. Points, releases. Runs to the water. Runs right on top of the water. Runs out to the, to the duck. Brings the duck back. Drops it at his feet. And he says, I have got an amazing dog here. See how culturated I am here? Pretty good, huh? So he says, I've got to show Bubba. I've got to show Bubba my friend 
because everybody in Ozark is, of course, Bubba. And um, so the next day, or next chance they get it to go out hunting, he brings Bubba with him. I said, I want to see what Bubba has to say. Now, Bubba's been his best friend since they were little kids. They got BB guns together. They shot together. They competed for everything. Who's the best shot? Who can shoot the most squirrels for supper? Possum. And when they were really hungry, Hoover's hogs. You ever heard of Hoover's hogs? That's what in, oh, come on, you guys. I am more Ozarkian than you are. Hoover's hogs are armadillos that during the Depression, they would go out and shoot because that's all they could eat. Uh, guys, get up on your local history, will you? Anyway, so he and Bubba have been competing for all this time. So he goes out, shoots a duck, dog points, runs across the lake on top of the water, grabs that duck, brings it back, drops it at his feet, and he looks over at Bubba, see what Bubba's got to say. Bubba ain't saying nothing. He says, what in the world? I would do it again, I guess. So he shoots another duck, and the dog goes out, walks on the water, brings the duck back, drops three or four more times. Finally, he can't stand it any longer. He says, Bubba, do you know anything strange about this dog? Bubba pauses, he thinks for a minute, he says, you know, there is something strange about that dog. He don't know how to swim. <laughs> now, that's the way that most of us come to God, okay? All that for this, okay? Most of us come to God that same way. You remember that last week of Jesus before he went to the cross? God spoke for the third time. The only time we ever hear God the Father speak in the New Testament is this is my beloved son at the baptism, at the transfiguration, and that couple days just before the crucifixion, God comes down and says the same thing the third time. If you ever want to hear the voice of God, get ready because God always talks to you just before a crisis. Whenever you hear the verbal word of God coming audibly to your mind, hold on, put your seatbelt on, because something pretty drastic is about to happen. Each time God will prepare you for that horrible experience of whatever it is, whatever transition that is, by reminding you, I just told you it's okay, go do it. You are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. But the problem is that when, the, when he spoke that last week, most of the people heard thunder. They didn't hear the word of God say, this is my beloved son. If you read the story in Luke or Mark, somewhere in there, um, it's that most of them heard thunder and were confused by the thunder. Like Bubba, they weren't open for the miracle. They were not open to be surprised. The point of this is at the as an openness to the different requires a willingness to be surprised. Rule number one, lesson number one here. An openness to the different requires a willingness to be surprised. You want God to take you somewhere in the future. You want to be radically altered by his presence. The first and foremost thing is we have to somehow submit and be dependent upon him for that vision and release ourselves into the surprise. It'll never happen if we don't. Because if you haven't noticed lately, there's something different about God. His thoughts are bigger than yours. His worldview is radically different from his. We will never allow God to be God unless we are equally open to being surprised. And this is where the rub comes in. Most of us don't like to be surprised. Most of us want God to be well-kept and well-mannered. 
We just like our God to be there when we need him, when we can use him. But don't, God, please don't mess with my life. Do not mess with me. Nothing makes this clearer than our penchant for wanting lists to do. Things to follow. Just give me three points and I'm out of here this morning. Whatever it is. We go for lists. We go for temps, tips and techniques. We want to be just better people. Come on, God. Just tell me what to do and I'll be glad to do it. God mostly surprises us by his lack of list making. When he takes your life and radically alters your life and you start breathing new air and you're born again and you're starting to see things that you've never seen and being aware of things that you're, you're not aware, rarely does he put his arm around you and say, okay, now, Bob, here's step number one I want. Here's step number two and here's step number three. Instead, he just says, follow me. No lists, just an eagerness for the journey. A willingness to go where he's going to take us. To leave Independence, Missouri and head towards Oregon, trusting the wagon master to get us there. Knowing where the dangers are, knowing what to do when dangers arise, and knowing how to protect us all the way through to the journey. This is really frustrating when all we want is answers. Just give me some answers, God. May I suggest to you that our penchant for black and white answers may give us a little insight into how immature we are in this journey. That when we want a specific answer to a specific quest, it's probably because we just don't know enough about God to sort of just be guided by his eye a little bit, to be reminded that he says, you know, I really don't care, Bob. I'm going to make you a blessing whatever you do. You want to go do this? Go do I'll bless you. You want to over here? What do, you, what do you want to do? I made you to have a heart. You'd follow your heart, but I'm going to bless you, whatever. But no, we're too afraid to do that. What if we screw up? And so we want to hold ourselves back and say, I'm not moving until God tells me exactly what to do. And listen, I've been there. Young minister, I was one time as a youth pastor at a church, and they asked me to, to go and be a... a lead pastor somewhere and I didn't know which way God wanted me to do so I locked myself in my office for five hours until God finally said okay Bob I can, if it takes you five stupid hours to get my answer I'll go ahead and you go do this I'm going to bless you there instead of him saying Bob all these times I just enjoyed being with you and so I learned over time that God is much less concerned about the specifics than he is about my heart about where I'm at, what do I want to do, what do, how do I want to be, how do I want to journey, how do I want to discover this God that is bigger than the highest thoughts that I can ever, ever imagine. When he told Moses to go down to Egypt, did he give him a list and say, by the way, I want you to know that you're going to get down there and these, these wise men are going to throw down their staffs and I want you to throw your staff down. And did he tell him everything? He didn't tell him nothing about those death angels, about the ten plagues, how long it was going to be and how hard it was going to be. He just said, go down and I'm going to be with you. You know how he, Moses knew God was going to be with him? That staff he had in his hand. You remember that from the very beginning of the story? Moses, I can't go, I'm too weak, I can't do this. And he was giving up all these reasons, which is why most of us, which is what most of us do when God tells us to do stuff. The reasons that we will not enter into his surprise in mystery. 
God says, throw your staff down, and it became a snake. You grab it, he says, it'll become a, uh, a staff again. It turned his hand leprosy, so you grab it, and his hand was not leprosy or ridden anymore. It was just his way of saying, I am, the staff is a symbol of my presence. That's why when in battle he would hold it up, and the battle would go their way as long as his hands were up, and if his hands came down, the battle went against him because... That was a symbol of God's presence. God is always going to embed himself in your life in some way. But he's going to go with you. He's not going to tell you every move to make. When David was anointed king, did God say, by the way, David, you're going to have to keep this a secret for 20 years, and in the meantime, you're going to be chased every day of your life by a king who wants to kill you? Or Abraham. He said, Abraham, I'm going to make you a father of many nations. And by the way, I want you to wait 25 years until your wife's barren and you're an old man before you have that kid. No. He just said, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a father of a nation. Just follow me. Take, go out of Ur and go on. Do whatever I ask you to do and it'll all work out. Just trust me. So that's what this is all about. Psalm 32, let's come back to that here in just a minute. I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye. And this is in contrast to the next verse, which says, Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Dumb mules, trained horses. Or if you want to put it in more vernacular terms, there's no kids in this room. Dumbasses. A lot of Christians are just dumbasses. No, but my wife is not here. She would really. And if you want to contact me about that, my, my uh, email is pagetimer at yahoo.com. <laughs> we want to bite down on the bit and then have God pull us one way or the other, turn left, turn right, turn our mind off so he can get us to wherever he wants us to go. Does that sound familiar? We expect to come to church to be told what to do. Here's another principle here. Where we focus upon guidance to get us to where we want to go, God focuses more on changing us to be what he wants us to be. We want guidance and steps. He wants heart and adventure. Who we are is basically ignorant that's where our dependence comes in. And he wants to get us to conform to his heart. It's more about our hearts than our careers. It's more about our inner life than our circumstances. It's more about you being a son or a daughter of his than it is about serving him in a specific way. It is about at one atonement rather than attainment. He is much more concerned about your and my heart being connected to his than whether we have a thousand people coming to this church. He is much more concerned about whether you and I are willing to be sons and daughters for what all that means rather than how many homeless we take care of downstairs on a weekly basis. The result, when we focus upon the brittle the bridle of the, of the horse and the mule, is that we spurn the counsel of the Lord. We have turned away from his eye guiding us and the inner life change that that happens. Distracted by the tyranny of performance, 
we are consigned to a life of spiritual immaturity. And I don't know about you, but that's why I get so frustrated with church. Is basically we confine everybody to a level of spiritual immaturity that depends upon those of us up front to give you just a little goodie every week to keep you coming. Come back next week and we'll give you a little bit more. Somehow the dirty secret of Western church is that we have made our people dependent upon us rather than passing through to remind you that we aren't it. That you're going to, if you follow this mystery, if you're open for the surprise and the risk-taking of God, you may be passing through our groups every once in a while on the way, or you may be standing up and we need to have all kinds of opportunities where we stand up and say, hey, guess what I discovered about God this week is you need to call us to some place. We can call you somewhere. You call us and we're all together. This us is us as family, not pastor and non-pastor. But no, we've made it so much so like, you know, we're, we're the ones that have gone before. We have the knowledge. So, so come alongside of us and make sure you bring your tithes and your offerings to sustain the pews that you're sitting in and the heat that you're under. And that really, really, really frustrates me. And it's why after 2,000 years, I think our churches are so blooming, weak, ignorant, and unwilling to enter into the mystery. Now you know why I'm doing this while Bev's gone. (laughs) We are followers of the way. We are followers of the way. This God who broke into our history, who one minute was omnimax, whatever, universal, you know, everybody mystery and, 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 and clouds of smoke and all the stuff around him. And the next minute he's a little fetus in a uterus being raised by this little teenage girl. If he can be that risk-taking for you, why can't we be that risk-taking back? We are followers of the way Jesus declared, I am the way. The way is not a list. It's receiving the presence of Jesus, doing what we can and be to receive all of the spirit stuff being poured into us. John 10, 27, you don't have it up there, but you've heard it. My sheep listen to my voice. What is, how, do you know if you're a follower of Christ? Is whether you're listening to his voice, not what you believe. But what you're hearing, are you hearing the voice of the shepherd? Mark 8, then he called the crowd with him, to him along with his disciples and said, if anyone could come after me, he must deny himself, give up your own stuff and take up his cross and follow me. And I love these verses in the Old Testament. I do have them up here because many times we have to be reminded how awesome the Old Testament is every once in a while. Exodus 33, my Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. He said, my list isn't going to go with you. My commandments aren't going to go with you. My presence is going to go with you and I will give you rest. I love that. He defines himself as presence, not as ruler, not as Lord, not as king, but presence. Psalm 89, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Love and faithfulness go before you. And then Isaiah 52, but you will not leave in haste or go in flight for the Lord will go before you. The God of Israel will be your rear guard. Now, Christians, we can put it into the thing. Jesus is going to lead the way. 
God the Father is going to get your backside. The Spirit's going to be mingling in there with you. Wherever you go, you got Jesus going first, God behind you, and Spirit with you. Is there anything that can mess with you in that? Any reason to be afraid of anything? Perfect love casts out fear, it says. Have you ever noticed that when you're spiritually in a spiritual dilemma, that rarely do we need answers? Mostly we need presence. We all want answers. Why did this happen to me? Why did he do this? Why did the boss fire me? You know, why did I get the F on that test or whatever it is? But rarely do we need answers because we internalize and all of that good stuff. We can figure it out. What we need is a still small voice, the cool breeze of God's presence across our furrowed brows and somebody just to say, you know what? I love you. I really care for you. You're awesome. And you're amazing. Remember Peter? Three times he cursed God with the best cursing that any sailor has ever invented to prove that he was not a disciple of Jesus. And just at that last utterance of cursing deniability, he looks up and he sees the eye of Jesus. And he's cut to the quick. He is devastated because Jesus has seen him with the words coming right out of his mouth. Now when Jesus finally had a chance to get with Peter, he didn't take Peter down the lake shore and put his arm around him and said, okay, Peter, let me tell you how you can restore yourself. You really blew a big time, by the way, buddy. You know that, don't you? Let me tell you what you do. First of all, you really need to come clean with me. I'll forgive you, but you've got to ask for it. And then before sundown tonight, I want you to go around to each of those other guys back there at the fire, and I want you to apologize to them and let them, let them know that you really screwed up and you're not going to do that again. I really want you to be the lead pastor here in Jerusalem, but I'm going to put you under some mentorship programs first so to make sure that we can trust you with that responsibility. That's pretty heavy-duty responsibility. And so uh, we get all those things, we're clear, okay? Is that, is that good? Does that sound familiar? Instead, Jesus said, Peter, you love me? Oh, Jesus, you know I love you, but I can't promise a perfect love. He said, Peter, do you love me? Yeah. Peter, do you love me? Of course. Then it's cool, man. Go and be my shepherd. Feed the sheep. It's as simple as that. I will guide you with my eye requires intimacy. It requires us to have this living heart connection with God himself. We all have people in our lives that when they give us the eye, we know what they mean because we have that living connection with them. We have lived with them long enough to know what they're thinking and how they're doing it. That requires intimacy. One glance from God's eyes and he corrects us in our path. Matthew 7, small is the gate, narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Now, this isn't talking about salvation here. We're not taking numbers about how good we are because we're the few, the proud, and the chosen here. It's really more talking about people who are open for surprise and open for the mystery. They're open to the new birth where they can see things that nobody else can see and believe things that nobody else can believe and hear things that nobody else hears. 
Only a few have the guts to do that. Broad is the way, and there's a lot of people going to life. And you know, listen, a lot of people are going to be saved that, that are not real partakers of the inner life and the mystery that I believe God is calling us to be and to do. I'm not going to be a judge on any of that. I think of kinds of people are going to be in heaven who didn't know they wanted to go to heaven. This God is full of grace, I'll tell you what. This isn't talking about salvation. It's talking about are you and I willing to be one of the few, not because we're arrogant or proud, but because we've been called into it to enter into this surprise based upon the intimacy of who Jesus Christ is. 2,500 years or more ago, the emperor of China went to, to the great Zen master, Lin Qi, and wanted to visit his monastery. He had... Um, Zen Buddhist monasteries all over China and he wanted to visit. He came to his main one there and there was 10,000 monks living in this monastery. And he went up to Lin Chi and he said, uh, how many disciples do you have here in the course of his conversation? is curious. He wants to you know, put the statistics where the statistics are, which is always what everybody asks about a church. How many people go there, by the way? Not how many people are open to the mystery. Not how many people really are being guided by the eye of God himself. No, how many people are showing up? How big's the budget? How many do they have on their staff? He said, how many disciples do you have? Lin Chi answered, after he paused, he says, maybe four or five. Intimacy requires time and opportunity. Intimacy requires a willingness to explore. In fact, those of you who think about getting married, this isn't a bad list. If you've got somebody that matches up on this list here, you've got yourself probably a partner for life here, okay? But I don't want to motivate you that way. I want you to motivate you to the heart of Christ here. Intimacy requires time, time and attention. Intimacy requires a willingness to explore to find things that you didn't know. And gentlemen, yes, that even means long, agonizing talks at two in the morning when you really want to go to sleep. Refusal to be stymied by misunderstandings. Misunderstandings are simply stair steps to getting to know each other better. Curiosity about the other. Really just making that person your life study for the rest of your life. That's an incredible journey. Bev and I have had amazingly difficult and awesome times. Our goal when we're 80, which will be 25 years from now, um, is to sit on the front deck of our house in our rocking chair, just looking at each other, not having to say a word, and say, you know, we made it. Just by looking, we made it. We did it. We got kids and grandkids and great-grandkids, and we did it. We held together. Sharing a mutual love journey. Focus upon looking for surprises. She still surprises me. I, you know, gentlemen, do not think you're ever going to figure her out. Just don't try. You're not going to ever figure her out. She's crazy. <laughs> That's all I can say. Without intimacy, we are left adrift. 
And when we're left adrift, then we naturally look for lists. And, you know, the Ten Commandments become a very primary thing. And so many times we become focused upon the rules. The rules. And we forget the journey, the eyes, the intimate contact, the excitement of time, adventure, journey, togetherness, exploration, all that kind of stuff. When Jesus was asked what was the greatest commandment, he didn't give a list of ten. He simply said, love. If you follow me, you will become lovers. We were created for intimacy. We were created to be dependent upon his intimacy. To abide in him, know his voice. We were made not for lists, and we were not made for techniques. We hate those. We rebel against those. But they are so comforting when we're confused. The issue for for Israel in the desert, when God said, I'm going to take you out of Egypt and bring you to Mount Sinai because I just want to be with you. Let's come together. And you can read this in Exodus 19 and 20. Let's come together to worship together, to be together. All I want to do is be with my people. And they get to the mountain and they see this powerful God and they get scared. And they said, we don't want to go there. Just give us a list to do. So boy, did he give them a list. They couldn't turn around without a list. What they ate, what they slept, what days they did this, what they didn't eat. I mean, it gave you, when you washed, when you bathed, whatever, even when you had sex. You talk about a complete list. Did that do them any good? Because it didn't deal with their heart. It didn't do with his way, his truth, his life, living out the reality within them. What we need today is soft hearts, openness to this surprise. Mother Teresa did not have a list when she went to Calcutta. She just looked around and said, somebody's got to hold these people when they're dying. Nobody's touched them their whole lives. I read the story of three sisters in New York who gave up living in America and the American lifestyle, and they went down to one of the worst slums in Rio de Janeiro and two of them would spend all day long inside their cold water flat didn't even have hot water and they would sew so to sell clothes so that the third sister could go out and be a nurse to all those people who lived in this worst worst part of Rio de Janeiro just just to be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ himself church I pastored in in uh, San Diego one time Head elder was this old retired chiropractor. You could not go into the church without him grabbing you and giving you a wet kiss on your cheek. Everybody got kissed. Nobody, we lived in sort of a, uh, I mean, the, the church was in a, in a downward spiral part of, of San Diego near the San Diego Zoo. And, and so we had a lot of street people that would come in and no other church would let them in the doors. And, and Charlie was always the first one to spot these people and he'd go right up and put his arms around them, give them a hug. I pastored that church for five years and it grew from about 150 attending to 650 attending. And I said, you know what? It had nothing to do with me. It had all to do with the fact they all wanted Charlie's kiss every week. Mary Pippard in her book, Out of the Salt Shaker and Into the World, tells a story. And this is, this dates me, okay? This is an old story. But back in the old days, there was this thing called hippies. And uh, she, was, she was a student at the University of Oregon. And so uh, 
she told a story about this one young student at University of Oregon, which is still known as one of the big party schools in the in the great 50 states of United, America, United States of America. Anyway, he found Christ. I don't know how he found Christ, but he realized that if I find Christ and I want to be a Christ follower, I better go to church. Not knowing one church different from the other, he shows up you know, with this old hippie robe, his long hair, he probably hasn't had a bath for a while. And uh, he walks into the church that was closest to campus, which was this old pipe organ-driven you know, tradition-rich church, had the pews with the doors that latched, you know, and all of that. And he started walking in and trying to find a place to sit, and all these things were closed. So the only thing he knew is he walked all the way down this old church to the very front row, looked around, sat down, crossed his feet on the ground. Well, if you know anything about churches in the 60s, I mean, they were designed to make sure that everything was proper, Decorum was primary. You dressed up for you in your Sunday best. You didn't come to church. You couldn't come to church in jeans. In fact, I pastored a church and interned in a church in North Carolina one time where a kid that hadn't been in church for four or five years came back to church for the first time and wore jeans, and people told him he couldn't come into church. I was about ready to kill somebody at that point. So here's this sophisticated church shocked beyond belief that this man would come in and not know enough to sit down, especially why didn't he just sit in the back where nobody would notice him? They didn't know what to do. I know some of the people were looking around, hope the deacons take care of him, pull him out and, you know, get him out of here where he belongs so we can go back to worshiping God. Just about that point, a, an old patriarch in the church, sitting with his wife, Towards the back, he gets up and slowly ambles down to the front. And he goes over and he shakes this man's hand. And he sits down beside him, puts his feet under him just like the other guy, and sat there through the whole service with this guy who didn't know any better. That's what journey is about. That's what intimacy is about. That's what's knowing your creator, knowing your God, knowing that he cares for you and has a plan for you. Some of you have heard the story of Don Quixote and the man from La Mancha. His real name was Alonzo Kiana, and in, in, I can't go through the whole play, but he's, the word quixotic comes from him. You know, he's just a weird guy. He's out on this journey and a quest, and he's really bizarre, and he's totally nonconformist and all of those things. Well, he, one day he bumps into Aldonza, who is a burnout barmaid and a prostitute. And in his hallucination life, sort of, he takes her on as this princess. In his mind, she becomes this princess. And he buys her clothes and, and, and the expensive boots, and, and, and he prances her around town. Everybody knew who she was. Everybody knew her background. Everybody knew who, all that was going on in her life. And he would call her Dulcinea, my little sweet one. My little sweet one. And he would carry her. He'd take her hand and properly help her up the stairs and all the things that you do to a sophisticated, lovely woman. And at first she was a little upset and angry about all this because she didn't know what he was doing. Was he playing a silly, stupid game with her? Was he really going to just make her a laughingstock of the whole town or not? But... Over time, she discovered that he had this unique innocence and this um, 
acceptance of her that she'd never ever experienced before. He accepted her as Dulcinea, not as Aldonza. And in the play, she finally said, well, because this is, why is she attracted to this man? Here, here it is on the screen here. Because out of him comes an affirmation that she is treasure. And is to be prized as treasure and treated as treasure. He shatters her wall of defensiveness and fear. That's what it means to be led by the eye of the Lord. That's what it means to be the amazing risk taker, the surprised one, the one who is open for all that God wants to pour into you. Because the first thing he's going to pour into you is how much he treasures you. That you are Dulcinea, my precious one. And this is what she says in the, well, this is what he says to her. Uh, no, this is what she says in the play. She says, Dulcinea cries Aldonza. My God, he knows my whole life story. I'm a slut, yet he calls me Dulcinea. For this woman covered with shame, it's a word that rises like a beacon from the depths of a black sea. Dazzling in its simplicity, transforming in its power, Astounding in its wisdom, Dulcinea is unspeakable utterance from the mystical depths of God himself. That is how he starts with you. It's me standing up and saying, wow, God knows my entire life and it's okay. He knows my screw-ups. He knows those things that embarrass me. That if any of you had a clue what I think about when I go to my embarrassing moments, you wouldn't have anything to do with me. And God says, Bob, you're my Dulcinea. You're just my precious one. And I'm going to end with this. When Gavin, our grandson, who's now 20, soon to be 21, was just a little kid... Bev was also playing grandma with him. And one day she was tired of playing, and so she stretched out on the couch, and he was down on the floor playing. And he said, Grammy, come down and play with me. She says, I am. I'm watching you, and that's play for me. And a few minutes later he said, Grammy, come down and, and, and play with me. She says, I am. I'm, I'm watching you, and that's lots of fun for me. And he stops, and he looks at her, and he says, Grammy, Watching isn't playing. And I don't know where any of you are this morning. I don't know if any of this said anything to any of you. But if you're tired of getting out of the watching game and starting to get down on the floor and start playing, I believe God has some amazing things for us to do. Some of you, to get off the couch and on the floor is to just surrender to Christ and say, I really want this life. I'm ready. And maybe we still got water up there. You can come up and Vince still got wet clothes somewhere. And, and we can make it happen even right now. But some of you just need to start right there. But the harder one is for the rest of us who have learned to accommodate ourselves to Western Christianity. And we've got all the tips and techniques and all the rules and all the paradigms and all the expectations and all the visions and all the things that we think ought to happen. And to get off that couch 
and down on the floor where God's playing for real and join in with him.